Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. We're glad you're able to join us on the YouTube live stream. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, if you are joining us on the YouTube live stream, I hope you're able to uh, join us by putting in your comments or questions as the panelists continue their discussion today on the letter written by James. So, Jeff, are you taking it over, Jeff? I suppose so. Good afternoon. Thank you, Drew. And we are going to continue our study of the book of James today. We uh, kind of took an introductory look at it last week, talked about who James was, and we talked about who the audience uh, is for the book of James. And we talked a little bit about the contents of the book of James, but we're going to spend some more time looking at the lessons in James today. Good afternoon, Chase, and good afternoon, Joe. Hey, guys. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Anthony. <laughs> Anthony. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Chase. Uh, sorry. Okay. All right. Um, so where would you guys like to start? How far did we get last week? Seems like we 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 kind of bounced around a little bit, but I think we yeah. spent some time in chapter one anyway, didn't we, last week? Yeah. yeah. I wonder if it would be helpful to uh, pick up maybe at the end of chapter one and sort of see how chapter breaks, you know, they're just consistently misleading. I'm not at all suggesting that I would do a better job. I certainly no. would not. But it seems like at the end of chapter one, you have this idea of, you know, religion. Um, if anybody thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, uh, his religion is useless, verse 26. And then pure and undefiled religion, he couples things. Uh, visiting orphans and widows and keeping oneself unspotted from the world. That verse almost seems to be an introduction to uh, the next text. Um, visiting orphans and widows. And then he talks about uh, not showing favoritism and uh, then also of uh, helping your brother or sister who is in need in uh, verse uh, 14 and following. And so it just seems like that's a... Uh, it's maybe unfortunate if we stop in chapter one and then start our minds again in chapter two. You know, the idea of orphans and widows and strangers and those in need is a very common theme throughout the Old Testament mm -hmm. and a common theme in the book of Acts as well. Taking care right. of widows, taking care of those who are in need, uh, providing for the, the saints that were in need in Acts two and in Acts four and then the widows in Acts six and then the... Uh, the famine in chapter 11, you know, that, that just seems like it's a really has a prominent place of taking care of all of those. And so I might suggest coupling 127 with the beginning of chapter two, certainly. Yeah. You know, your point about the chapter breaks, there's a story, probably not true. I don't know. Maybe it's true, but the, the versification and the chapter breaks were not in uh, the books of the new Testament when it was originally written. And the, the story is that sometime, I think, in the Middle Ages, supposedly, and I think the story goes it was a Spanish monk, I'm not sure, uh, put those in as he was riding along on horseback. And so every time the horse would hit a, a bump or jolt or whatever, they'd throw off his aim as to where he was putting the brake. Um, you know, who knows? I don't. I don't put a whole lot of stock in that story, but the result that we have is not totally unlike what would have happened in that situation. But you're, but you're right. He, he, what he is saying, it really goes back to uh, James chapter one and um, verse 25. Um, 
being not a hearer that forgetteth, but a doer that worketh, this man shall be blessed in his doing. Great. And so from then on, he's talking about doing, doing what you ought to be doing. And a lot of the, a lot of it focuses on the, the natural tendency that we have to gravitate to the rich and the important, the celebrities, although James isn't talking so much about celebrities, but we see that in our culture and want their attention and their approval more so than to focus on providing for those who need our help. And um, so good. So let's do, let's start, start into chapter two by reading, uh, starting at verse 27, uh, I guess. And, and let's just read, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, I'll read a little bit here and then we can talk about it. I'm going to start in James 1:27. Pure religion and undefiled before our God and Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. My brethren, hold not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come into your synagogue a man with a gold ring in fine clothing, and there come in also a poor man in vile clothing, and you have regard to him that wears the fine clothing and say, sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, stand there, or sit under my footstool. Do you not make distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose them that are poor as to the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to them that love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and themselves drag you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Howbeit, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you have respect of persons, you commit sin, being convicted by the law as transgressors. Okay, let's let's talk about uh, the, the the passage right there, just what he's saying and how we make application of that a little bit. Any observations? Well, um, maybe just to put it in uh, in practicality, has this ever happened to you where you've been given a special seat because of who you are? You know, you know, I don't know that each one of us has advantages in life. And there was certainly a point in life where I, I had some advantages because, um, because of the family I was in and people, people knew my name and, um, it afforded me some, some privileges. So I don't, it's not quite the same thing, but I think each one of us sometimes get some advantage in life that we've not earned um because and often i mean it's it's you got to figure out why you're getting that advantage right so i'll use myself as an example um very thankful for this um i've had two great experiences this year that i'll never had before and i'll probably never have again and they were both due to the kindness of a couple of brothers in christ one brother here at the congregation he took me to a pacers game and we got these box seats and we were very, I was very privileged to get to go and watch the game that way, had a buffet behind me. And then not too long ago, I got to go to the Colts game and I sat on the 40 yard line. Again, a brother in Christ had tickets through his work and he, he invited me. You could say I was privileged to sit there and be there. The poor and, you know, the homeless that I passed on my way in, they didn't get those tickets. I did. Um, but it wasn't because that brother thought less of that person and more of me. It was because he was being gracious and he knew me. Um, 
Now, maybe that's a silly example, Joe. I don't know what you're looking for. Yeah, I'm not sure if he was looking for yes or no. <laughs> no, I, I, neither one. I'm just curious. Um, but I'm especially thinking about, uh, and, and I wonder if some of that might have happened to Chase just by mistaken identity. Um, he looks like some famous people. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Anybody in particular, Joe? <laughs> You know, it's just sort of obvious, you know, there's just, there's a, there's some good looking men in the world and, and Chase is just the doppelganger of them. Let's, let's see, let's see everyone write in and just let me know who you think, what celebrity I look like. <laughs> Please, That'd be great. That'd Please be great. do. Please do. <laughs> so, uh, but there, seriously, there was an occasion when I was in another country and uh, in part because I was one of the teachers, but I suspect also in part because I was an American and perceived as being very wealthy yeah. and, uh, you know, maybe being perceived as superior to a number of the other people. Uh, I was given, uh, me and the other fellow that I was with were given very special chairs in the the, the meeting place where we were. And that just made us feel really awkward. And I was really thankful the other fellow took the initiative and just picked up the chair and moved it down to sit with all the other people. And I yeah. followed him in that. And, and that was that that was comforting to just because it was just awkward. But if you're given this special seat, you, you might very well begin to think that you are more important than others and so forth. I'm only relating that in this text because I, I think we should try to see that from that other perspective. If you're treating people special because of something that they might have to offer you, um, that that's a that's a dangerous. That's what that's what James is dealing with. That partiality with motive. Yes. And there's nothing yeah. wrong. You know, there's nothing wrong with showing some kind. We we will offer if we have a visiting speaker come to speak for us. Uh, we we may have a potluck during that period of time that he's here, and it's kind of customary. Um, we'll ask him to go first to, to get in line first. Right. And and we're not trying to do that as a way of ingratiating ourselves so that he will somehow do us, you know, give us money or or plug our name or something like that. It's really part of our hospitality, and we've invited somebody to come, and we want to take care of him. So we we don't want to create the impression that you can never um, do a favor for somebody. But I think you hit the nail on the head when, when we talk about is our, when we do something for somebody, is it because we think we, we can get something in return in Matthew uh, the sixth chapter, Jesus talks about those who behave that way. He says in verse, um, Oh, let's start in verse four. Five. No, let's, yeah, verse five. Um, well, really, we could go back to, to chapter five, where he's talking about loving your enemies and not just those who love you, but those who don't also. And he says in verse 47, if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the Gentiles the same? Anybody will love those who they think is going to love them back. And then in chapter six, he's talking about the hypocrites who want the glory of men. And so when they're going to give alms, they blow the trumpet in verse two to call attention to what they're about to do. And of course, what they are trying to do, yes, they're helping the poor, 
but they're doing it with the motive of what they can get out of it. And, and really, that's kind of the thing in James. Instead of trying to get something out of it, do what you ought to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, touching on that point, too, I don't know if you guys have noticed, James only invokes the name of Jesus two times. It's at the very beginning in chapter 1, and then it's right here in chapter 2 and verse 1 as well. And I take that pretty important. Of all the places he's going to try and invoke the name of Jesus, he does it when he's talking about how can we who hold on to this faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ show favoritism. There's two Mm -hmm. things I take from that. One, uh, this goes against Jesus' teaching. I mean, this is what Jeff just pointed out. Jesus was all about humility across the board for all of his um, followers. But secondly, he calls him the Lord of glory or or the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. In comparison to the glory of Jesus, who are we as his disciples to start to try and make these distinctions among ourselves based off of outward circumstances? I mean, that's just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Looking for the wrong glory. Right. All right. Anything else you want to talk about in this section? Um, We read down through verse uh, 9. Well, I, I mean, I think it's just helpful. How much more clear does he have to say it? Um, in uh, down in, or you said we're read through verse nine. Yeah, in verse nine. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. I mean, that's yeah. it's straightforward. You want to talk about practical lessons? Don't show favoritism. That's that's yeah. a sin. Yeah, don't show that kind of favoritism where you are showing favoritism for those who are in a position to exalt you. Yeah. Um, and, and and likewise, ignoring and mistreating people who don't have something, perhaps mm-hmm. carnally or materially, to, yeah. to offer you, um, you know, that sort of uh, uh, false religion or useless religion. He uses that terminology later. Um, uh, it will be manifested maybe by seeing whether or not you are treating. People who look different, have a different economic background or status, different uh, education level, uh, different skin color. They might smell different, whatever the case. You know, if you are treating them less favorably, that's an indication of of where you are with the Lord then. Mm -hmm. All right. So then in verse uh, 10, after saying, you know, you, you sin when you do this, you become transgressors of the law. Then he he makes the point for whosoever shall, this is verse 10 of chapter two, whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he has become guilty of all. This, I think, is where we really sense the same kind of problem that Jesus talked about amongst the Pharisees. Uh, Amongst the Pharisees, they were sticklers for the traditions of the elders, and they had all kinds of rules uh, enforcing the Sabbath and, and various other things. And yet... Uh, when it came to such things as mercy and justice and, oh, I forgot what the third term was that Jesus alluded to in Matthew chapter 23. Um, oh, what is it? Let me turn there real quickly. i break my train of thought here. But in Matthew chapter 23, when he talks about the Pharisees tithing mint, anise, and cumin, he says, you've left undone the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. How did I forget that? <laughs> but, but that, that, kind of mentality is really what James is dealing with here. He he says, look, you can think you keep the whole law, but if in this very practical area of, of, 
of not showing favoritism, of looking out for the afflicted, of looking out for the ones who need your help, and of prioritizing what you you can get from somebody else. If you're guilty of that, all of your pretense of keeping the law otherwise is of no value because you're guilty of all. Amen. Very all right, why, why don't we, uh, one of you, why don't you pick it up there starting in verse 11 and go down as far as you think we need to go to develop the next section here. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Such faith you know, Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is about clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one, good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works and offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was made complete, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, and, as he, was, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works? And receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So maybe just to, to mention, as we begin to talk about this text, if anybody who's following along uh, with these studies wants to make a comment, feel free to, to put that in the comment section. So one of the things that jumps out at me is as we come in, this text is related to the text we were just talking about. It's related to the preceding context. It was not written to confront Baptist doctrine. I think there is something here that um, maybe Baptist doctrine uh, would be helpfully informed by. Uh, when I say Baptist doctrine, I'm talking about faith-only doctrine. Uh, but this passage was not written to prove that you have to be baptized. Uh, this passage was written to say your religion cannot be just in a formal religion only. You need to put it into practice. You need to be treating other people the way that you're supposed to treat other people. Yes, I think there's a point to be made to the folks who are of the faith-only persuasion, um, but there's a more practical uh, lesson being taught by James that's right in the forefront of the context here. And maybe the hinge verse from what we just talked about into the faith and works is verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Um, there's a call for them to be merciful to each other in their dealings with one another, not showing favoritism or partiality in what we just looked at. But then there's also a call for them to be merciful when a brother or sister comes and says, I need to, I need food, I need clothes. Well, will you be someone who acts on that and shows mercy and does something about that? Will your faith be active in that? So I think verse 13 is a good hinge verse for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we've got a question from CJ. He says, what law is he talking about in verse 10? The law of Moses 
or Christ. I've heard both. So we go back to verse 10. Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he has become guilty of all. That's really a good question. So when he says keep the whole law, is he talking about the law of Moses or the law of Christ? Um, and this probably to some degree goes back to what we talked about last week. Uh, who writes this to whom he's writing and what are your thoughts? Well, so we've noted, like you said last week, just the amount of Jewish influence on this letter. I mean, in the countless references to the old law, I appreciated what Joe said. Would you say Leviticus 19, right, Joe? You just yep, go yep. down the list. This was included in that, right? Yep. So with that being said, it makes me think law of Moses and what he's citing, love your neighbor as yourself, do not commit adultery, do not murder. Those were tenets of the law. So I, I would go law of Moses, just contextually speaking. Yeah, I think I think I would too. And I remember in, in Acts 21 when James, who writes this letter, makes the point to Paul how many thousands there are um, among the Jews of them who believe, who are zealous for the law. Now, now the reality is uh, Paul in Galatians and in Romans talks about love being the fulfillment of the law, not, not love instead of the law, but if, if if you think about the law, it's talk, teaching us how to love God and love our neighbor. And so when you when you get that down and you're loving God and loving your neighbor, you're you're keeping the, the requirements of the law. So there it's not as if this is unrelated to the ethic of, of Jesus. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if the readers in the first century to whom James was writing were would have been first thinking of the law of Moses. What are your thoughts, Joe? Yeah, I, I think that that's a good, good, fair points all the way through. Um, he also talks about another law in the same context, 125 and 212 speak to uh, the law of liberty. Mm -hmm. um, and so this sort of pericope, if I can use that fancy word two weeks in a row, um, uh, you know, um, you have these bookends of law of liberty and then sandwiched in between that you have all these references to what's pretty clearly the law of moses mm -hmm. um uh, so you have this royal law this law of liberty and they're not in competition and they're not even in contrast to one another what what the old law told people the way they need to behave is extremely similar mirrored to what we are, how we are taught to behave, particularly in relationship to one another. Like, what, what difference would you would you offer? How the old law tells us to treat one another, and how the new law treats tells us to treat one another. In fact, when the New Testament writers want to tell us how to treat one another, they often quote from the old law. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's not so much of a distinction I would suggest being made here. Obviously, we're not at all suggesting that we're living under the law of Moses. But there are things to be gained by studying that. And I think that's what you're doing. Well, I, I was just going to say, I mean, it looks like there's a footnote in the New American Standard that royal law in verse 8 could be translated the law of our king. Um, right. And that, that would make me think of Christ. It def definitely would. Um, sure. Not, not so much God the Father as I would think about Jesus. So if that's the law in mind, um, then I don't know. Um, and, and that would be my position as well. I think that is the point, is that that's the law that Jesus lived by. Yeah. Um, and that he expects his subjects to live by. Um, but again, that's not contrasting anything with the way that uh, don't commit adultery, don't steal, and love your neighbors yourself. 
those would all fall, be sort of subcategories, kind of like when we talk about the first two commandments. Upon all of these hang all the law and the prophets. You know, there's, there's always one little law that jumps out at me that I think is illustrative of a lot, a lot of what we see in the Old Testament. We sometimes get hung up on the dietary laws and some of those kinds of things. I think there's an, a spiritual point being taught in those laws, but one that always comes to mind, there's a law, and I can't think of, I, I want to say it's in Deuteronomy, but maybe it's Exodus, where it talks about when you build a house around the roof, you've got to put a parapet. Oh, yeah. Uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, oh, I should know that. Is that yeah. is that the right word, parapet? Yep. And and the point is, what what's the point of that law? Deuteronomy 22.8. Okay, that, okay, I was trying to spot it there in Deuteronomy 22. Do you want to read that real quick? I can once I get there. Um, Let's see. Maybe I'll get there first. Okay, I got it. Verse 8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring blood guilt on your house if anyone falls from it. So a little barrier around the, the edges of your roof of your house, and that's all about being responsible for your fellow man. When he goes mm -hmm. up and walks around your on your roof, you don't want him to fall off and get, get hurt. We have a lot of laws like that in, in our culture, in our society. Mm -hmm. But it illustrates the point. It's not just an arbitrary thing. It's this is part of how you think about others. And uh, so it, it's in the law of Moses. But uh, good. good connection. I like that. A, it is a, a good illustration of that. Illustrative, as you, as you might say. <laughs> um, so wait, who 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 gets better credit this week? Pericope, your pericope, or my parapet? Ooh, well, yours is in the Bible, so <laughs> you, you win today. Okay. Um, all right, let's go to James chapter two. And um, where did you? You got all the way through the end of chapter two. Oh, there's some more that we need to talk about here in connection with faith. So so. James does use as an example of faith, Abraham being justified by, I'm sorry, as an example of works, being justified by works. Abraham in verse um, 20, uh, verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works in that he offered up Isaac, his son, upon the altar. So mm -hmm. he, he needed to do uh, what God called upon him to do. And there's an application to be made here when you think about Baptist doctrine, which says, no, at least a lot of Baptists teach that, no, as soon as you believe you're saved, uh, you don't have to do anything to be saved. And a lot of evangelicals teach that. But, but still thinking of this in the context, the point is this practical idea, your, your faith need, your, your religion needs to be a practical, working, obedient religion. Uh, and, and yet when he appeals to Abraham, it catches people off guard because Paul appeals to Abraham. In fact, this same incident in the life of Abraham to demonstrate that Abraham was justified by faith. And so people think that, that what we have here is James and Romans at odds with one another. And so we need to talk a, a little bit about that. Yeah, so you know, there's there's nothing contradictory about what Paul says and what James says. They are complementary. Uh, would be the, the way that I would approach that. Uh, James is not saying that Abraham was justified by works apart from the blood of Christ. 
Um, uh, and neither is Paul saying that uh, we are saved by faith only apart from obedience. Uh, in fact, that idea of being saved by faith in Romans, I think it's important to, to see again. I just I love bookends. They help me to appreciate text better. Uh, Romans 1 and Romans 16, the book opens and closes with the phrase obedience to the faith. Um, uh, and so that faithful obedience is is really what Paul is talking about all the way through the book. Obedient, obedient faith. Um, so they're not contradicting in any way. Yeah, I would go so far as to say James and Paul are using the word faith in different ways and they're using the word works in different ways. Uh, when Paul talks about being justified by faith, he's not talking about being justified by his simple intellectual uh, consent to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God or that he died and was raised. He is talking about putting our trust in Jesus' death uh, by living in accordance with God's will. I mean, you look at Romans chapter 6, and uh, he's talking about you you've got, you got can't go back and live in, in the old way anymore. You've got to live the new life. Um and, and James is using the word faith. He's not talking about a, uh, a practical way of life. He's talking about a faith that even demons have. Uh, who, who, you look at James chapter 1 and 2, verse 19. You believe that God's one, you do well. That's sarcastic. The demons also believe and shudder. The demons believe in what sense? In the sense of putting their trust in Jesus? In the sense of submitting to God's will? No. They just have an awareness that Jesus is the Son of God. And so James is using the word faith in a very simplistic way. And uh, Paul is using the word faith in a very comprehensive way. Um, and then when it comes to works, I think we've also got a difference. James is talking about uh, you need to be practical in your service to God, um, how you treat others. Paul is talking about taking the totality of the things you've done and supposing you can be justified because you've done these things. And, and Paul is saying, no, we're justified by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. So a man is saved by faith apart from works. Uh, in other words, if, if I take the body of my works and I present them to God, and that's my entire hope for justification, I'm not going to be justified because my works are polluted by the things I've done wrong. I mean, it's, oh yeah, we're hitting on it. I mean, it's how you define works. I mean, I, I they're similar, but they are kind of different depending on the context. Paul's talking about works of the law, my ability to do perfect law keeping. James, of course, I think he means it in the same way Titus talks about it, that Jesus in verse 14 of Titus 2 gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Mm -hmm. um, our obedience is an outpour of the faith and grace that, that uh, Jesus gave us. So. Paul is really trying to address uh, the, the mentality that um, somehow there's, there is a privilege or favoritism shown for being a Jew, being the circumcised, having, being circumcised, having the law of Moses. And he's saying that's not what's going to justify us. James is trying to adjust the mentality to address the mentality that Jesus is addressing specifically amongst the Pharisees, which is um, if I keep all these traditional teachings, the traditions of the elders, or maybe even a lot of the rules in the law somehow, uh, but w without really treating people the way I'm supposed to treat people, 
that I'm justified. And James is saying, no, that's not. And really, those two, the, the, what they're trying to address is not that far apart from each other. So, all right. Well, I don't know. I don't know. We, we got that horse dead, but we beat it anyway. So how important is it that he uses Abraham and Rahab? Uh, you know, that just seems like some pretty stark yeah. contrast, maybe especially if we take into account the Jewish audience that would be maybe first reading this. Yeah. So Abraham is the father of the Jews. In John 8, the Jews could say, we've never been in bondage to anybody. We're children of Abraham. And Rahab was this woman who was of ill repute living in one of the cities of the Canaanites that the Israelites were going to conquer and drive out. Even the, the, the terminology that I believe James is using purposefully, verse 21 and verse 25, was not Abraham our father. Verse 25, was not Rahab the harlot. You know, it's it's like, well, he could have said Rahab our mother. You know, look at the genealogy of Jesus. Right, right. Um, uh, but you he, didn't. he really does seem to be making a point of continuing with this thought maybe of, of even the partiality and so forth, um, uh, treating people differently, they would have even seen that as, as different. Yeah. I, I'm not sure I'd ever pause to think um, th that contrast there. Um, huh. Uh, but, but again, the, the point that he makes is in both the case of Abraham and Rahab, they had to be practical and they had to do what God wanted them to do, practice. So from whatever background you come from, the God's word applies equally. Uh, I think it would be one of the points. Yeah. And then we have this interesting last little verse. It's meant to be an illustration that you can't just have this uh, mental knowledge. Um, you have to... Uh, you have to put your faith to work. You have, you have to have a practical religion. He's going to illustrate that by saying the body apart from the spirit is dead. And we end up finding that a helpful passage just to talk about the difference between the spirit and the body in which we live and what happens at death. Um, and yet he is using that to illustrate another point here, the point we've been talking about. Amen. All right. Drew keeps trying to call our attention to the fact that we've got a comment we may have addressed all the comments we need to address, except I guess Jim Portillo says it sounds like works is being discussed in two different ways. I think, I think they are. I think we said that um, in Romans and James. I think that's right, Jim. So now at the end of chapter two, we, we, we kind of close our thinking process and then we start over again with chapter three and verse one. Is that what you're going to say? No. Good. 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 So, I, you know, kind of like what we said with chapters between one and two, is there some value in putting your finger over the number three, ignoring the chapter break? And there is. There is. So we, I've tried to stress as we've been going through this, that what James is addressing is especially the mentality that we see in the Pharisees that Jesus addressed, especially we see it in the book of Matthew. One of the things Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 or says about the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 is uh, he talks about their predilection, their desire, their love of uh, outward symbols of, of status. And uh, he talks about, for example, special robes and special seats, chief seats, getting that 
privileged, favored treatment, that kind of thing. And in that context, uh, he says down in verse 9, uh, verse 8, Be not you called rabbi, uh, which would mean teacher, for one is your teacher, and you're all brethren. And call no man your father on the earth, for one is your father, even he who is in heaven. Neither be called masters, for one is your master, even the Christ. He that is greatest among you shall be your servant, whosoever shall exalt himself shall be humbled, and whosoever shall humble himself shall be exalted. So you get this this picture of the Pharisees who love the status, not only of getting to wear the special robes and sitting in the chief seats, but have the title of teacher, rabbi, and be called with terms of respect when they're greeted in the marketplace. And you see that a little bit earlier back in verses uh, five and six, I think. Well, so here in James, coming right on the heels of everything that, that James has been saying, he now says, be not many of you called teachers. Um, well, Jesus had condemned the Pharisees for wanting that title of teacher. So this causes people problems again, because in another place in the New Testament, it's in Hebrews five, the writer says, by reason of time, you ought to be teachers, as if everybody should become a teacher by some point in the process of maturing spiritually. And yet James says, be not many of you teachers. So what, what, what gives here? Well, what gives is, I believe, James is addressing this mentality that fits in with what you see in Phariseeism, this love for the status symbol. And James is saying, don't go around craving that title teacher. If you are a teacher, you're going to have a lot of responsibility with it. It's not just a title. It's a responsibility. And so then we need to read this section. And so maybe if one of you would read starting in chapter three and take us down through verse, um, I guess, verse four, because then he's going to kind of he's going to continue with a similar point. But he's going to change direction and broaden it a little bit, starting somewhere in verse five or so. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Now, I don't know where exactly to put it's kind of james just bleeds from this concept of wanting the title teacher and, and realizing you know there's a responsibility with being a teacher he just bleeds from that right into the concept of anytime you're speaking using your tongue you can do a lot of damage if you're not careful and we need to be careful what we say whether we're teacher or not and I'm not sure where you would draw the line and say he goes from one to the other. It's just kind of one bleeds into the other. Yeah, I, I would be tempted to draw the line at the end of chapter five, but that's just me. Um, uh, <laughs> so, and, and I say that not really in jest, because by the time we get to the end of chapter three, does this not sound like much of what we were talking about in chapter two? Look at verse 13. Uh, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness and wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, doesn't that kind of sound like, you know, welcoming in the rich man, you're self-seeking in your hearts, or saying be warm and be filled, but not helping somebody, wouldn't that be an indication of not having good conduct? You know, I'm not sure that he's really leaving a 
there's kind of a broad umbrella, and I don't know what the title is for it in the book of James, um, but there seems like there's a really big umbrella that he's putting a lot of things under. And so it sort of looks like, you know, he's he's shooting in various directions, but I think he's really covering this pure religion and, and mm -hmm. uh, this uh, uh, learning to be more like the Lord. Again, matching what we find in the Sermon on the Mount, as you began pointing out last week and have done again this week. The Sermon on the Mount talks about a lot of different topics, but really it doesn't. It talks about being a citizen in the kingdom. His illustrations are interesting here. Um, a rudder that turns a great big ship. The rudder is very small by comparison to the rest of the ship, and yet it'll turn it a bridle in a horse's mouth. I don't know how many of you who are listening to this have ever uh, tried to get a uncooperative horse who is very excited to, to grab that horse and control him. Uh, but if you've got a horse that, that is, is strong and he's excited and he doesn't want to settle down, it takes a lot to grab the reins and, and, you know, pull them down and get them settled down. And, uh, and yet you can just put that little bit in his mouth and you can control him. Um, and, and then the fire, uh, I, I think everybody's aware just a small little bitty flame might, it, it can end up destroying a whole house. It can burn everything up. And that's the way it is with our tongues. Certainly teachers need to be aware of this. Uh, the way, what we say when we're teaching, um, when we're preaching, um, we need to be thinking about who our audience is. Uh, how to say what we want to say, but just in personal relationships, this is important. Yeah, excellent. Absolutely. Uh, such few words can can just have a, a great impact. You know, sometimes we we say, maybe we say to our kids, you know, sticks and stones, um, you know, don't worry what people say and so forth, but that's really not true. Um, the, the power of the word uh, maybe more significant and more damaging potentially than, than any other way to hurt somebody. And, and he really does. He starts off with this idea of wanting to be teachers and the, the, the responsibility that teachers have in how they use their tongues to talking about just generally anybody, how you use your tongues to specifically talking about out of the same mouth, you're going to bless God and curse men. Uh, that's an example of abusing the tongue but it's a very specific kind of a, a point. It's in verse nine. Uh, therewith, with the tongue, bless we the Lord and Father, and therewith curse we men who are made after the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth comes forth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. I think most of us have heard a parent say or somebody say, you eat with that mouth? Somebody, you know, just using foul, foul language or whatnot, and, it, and it's, it's a, a retort, a response, a rebuke that, that's meant to create the juxtaposition of, of what is coming out of your mouth versus what, you know, taking it in. But James does it a little bit differently. He talks about two things coming out of your mouth, one blessing and one cursing. Uh, that doesn't make sense. And cursing man that's made in God's image. It reminds me of Genesis 9 when they stepped off the ark. God said, whoever sheds human blood 
by humans, his blood will be shed for God made humans in his image. Yeah. yeah good it's a the same principle. That mm -hmm. You're made in God's image. Why would you talk about someone else made in God's image that way? Maybe an extended application to what Jesus taught in render to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. You know, that was based off of the image on the coin um, and recognizing that what is made in God's image is man. We render to man, to God what belongs to God. We were made in God's image. An extension of that then is how we treat others as well. Yeah. And it's the same idea. I mean, when someone talks bad about our kids, whew, that'll get you riled up quick. And that, that's how the father feels um, when we're bad mouthing people talking behind their backs, you know, gossiping, slandering, whatever. Um, I also, guys, I, I like how um, it, it just kind of leaves out, but I think the point can still be made. All these same things are kind of unintentional. It doesn't matter if it's on purpose or not. Uh, some of the things we say, you can say them on complete accident or say them with zero harm. And yet they can still have such a, 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 you know, an effect on people. And I think it just called attention to, to trying to be more careful with our tongues. Um, Matthew 12, be judged for every idle word, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, guys, we're out of time today. I would like to try to finish up the book of James next week and pick it up in chapter 3, verse 13. Um, and that's going to lead nicely into chapter 4 again because you can smudge out the, the 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 number four there and pretend it's not there because it wasn't and the the context will flow so let's that okay guys let's just continue with that next week all right uh lord willing we'll see you all next week thank you for listening to bible quest so james